tonight on The Art Dealer Show, you will hear this art dealer say, I'm a kind of a strange bird, so I put these ads on Craigslist. It says, looking for weird people creating weird things. Because I want to see what's out there. Hello and welcome to The Art Dealer Show, the one podcast for and about the people who sell art. My name is Danny Stern, and welcome back to our corner booth here at the old art dealer bar. I've already gotten ahead of us, and I'm in the midst of sipping a little bit, something perfect, samber, it's cold, sweet, putting me in the perfect mood for what promises to be a fantastic episode, and I suggest you do the same. Tonight, we're returning to the second half of our conversation with gallerist and owner of exclusive collection galleries based in San Diego, California, Ruth Ann Thorne. Now, normally I would say something along the lines of, if you haven't listened to the first part, it's not a prerequisite for this one. You can get to it somewhere down the line, but I gotta be frank. If you've got the time, go back and listen to that first part. Maybe even before this, it's episode number 21. And here's why. It's actually been a year and a half since we put out the first part of this conversation. And I was prepared to put out the second part right off with no real big to-do. And I started feeling uh, I started feeling a little bit odd about it. I just didn't want to jump into that second half. And here's why. It has been a year and a half since we put out the first half of my conversation with Ruth Ann. And a year and a half is a long time these days. And things might have changed in her life. Or even in her gallery as an owner. And maybe if we had talked now versus back then, she would have had said things a little bit differently or a lot differently and maybe chose to speak about entirely other subjects that that felt more pertinent to the moment. So I thought we'd do things a bit differently this time. And I'll just give her a short call to check in and see how she's doing, see if any of this is the case. Hey studs, can I have the phone for a bit? Thank you. By the way, if you want to check out the first part of our conversation, it's episode 21. Hey, Danny. Hey, Ruth Ann. How you doing? Good. It's good to hear from you. Where am I'm I excited. Catch- Where am I catching you? I'm in San Diego commuting on the uh, 5 freeway. So I got you were. in your car. You did. So it has been, what, a year and a half since we spoke last? I think so. What's happened in the last year and a half? Um, I think the last time we spoke, I'm, I think I still had Vegas opened and I had gone through closing locations systematically. I kind of saw some changes coming, and I think we talked about that. Mm-hmm. And um, so um, my last gallery that I closed was in Las Vegas last year around November. But let's clarify, and that's not your last gallery. You still have your gallery in San Diego. I have, yes. And I have one gallery, kind of a flagship in San Diego, where mm-hmm. it all started. And that gallery, I moved from a tourist location at Seaport Village to a high-end residential, um, kind of a, a street that's very hip, up and coming, 
And surprisingly enough, we do get tourists there, but I went in there with the idea that it was going to be primarily um, kind of a high-end residential area. Is that why you made the move? Did you decide it would be better? I did. Yeah? I made the move because of the changes I saw in the art industry, and I thought it would probably be good positioning for Mm -hmm. us. And it, it actually has been a pretty good move. Well, what were the changes you saw in the business that you thought would be better addressed being in a residential neighborhood? Well, I think, you know, we've got some, um, you know, shifts. And we talked about that last time. I The primary shift I see, well, two. One, demographic, you know, the actual um, desires of the buyers based on their age and where they're at as far as buying art in the market. And the second one being the Internet. I think both of those have... Uh, made some significant changes to the way, and it's not just with art, it's the way that people acquire whatever it is they're interested in acquiring. So with the um, shift from the tourist to the residential, I have the ability to build more of a community within the gallery space Mm -hmm. and have clients that can continue to come back Um, as often as they want, because in a lot of cases, they literally live a five-minute walk to the gallery. So we see them all the time. And so we're developing a little bit more of a tight-knit community, and people are supporting the gallery, one, because they like the art, but two, because they like to support local businesses. You know, it's funny, when I talk with galleries that are in tourist places, or I talk with galleries that are, you know, community residential galleries like you're talking about, they almost know nothing of each other's business. It's so strikingly different in the way that they talk to collectors and, and develop the sale. Hmm. Well, I'm fortunate because I've had both. Uh-huh. Anyway, in my opinion, just based on what I've experienced, I feel like the tourist galleries are really getting the brunt downturn in the art market. And that's primarily because people, they can just go and shop it online. And so they do, because then they don't have to hassle with any of it. They, But the gallery acts as a really wonderful place to advertise whatever artist works that, are, that you know they have. But then ultimately they take the information and then sometimes they'll, you know, go back to the gallery. But then it's primarily about shopping for the best price. And we've got a, a consumer that's very trained to do that. And I'm one of them. That's always been a big issue where you'll have art, you know, collectors who will originally see things in a tourist-based gallery because that's when they have the time, when they're on vacation. They get educated in those galleries, and then they'll come back home and sometimes look for a local gallery to buy from, partially because of price and partially because they just feel a little bit more comfortable with it. You know, those people seem to have a little bit more time for them. The sales environment seems to be a little bit more relaxed because people aren't on that mode of, I got to catch them right now because they're only going to be in my gallery once, you know, on a a vacation. Usually people won't return a couple times. And so they gravitate towards that. The problem is what you just pointed out, which is if everybody did what you did, we would be missing a component to our ecosystem. That being the tourist gallery that originally introduces people to the artist in the first place. And that's why they're going out of business. See, the difference before was you didn't have a place to easily access it. The easiest thing that you could do if you wanted to shop to make sure you got the best value, which you know has become a very important thing now for today's consumer. 
They may have the money to pay more, but who wants to? So that's the point. It's not that they're being, it's not, um, you know, that they're, that they're pinching pennies. It's just they don't want to get ripped off. And now it's so easy for someone to access that information. You know, in the 90s up until I'd say even early 2000s, if you wanted to shop something, if you were lucky enough to get Architectural Digest and you saw 30 dealers that went in on a co-op ad, well, now you have their phone numbers and people would start calling. What's your best price? What's your best price? And then they would start, if they were really thrift oriented, they would start pitting dealers against each other. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, if they felt like the price was fair within you know, the range of whatever it was, then they would just go normally with whoever gave them you know, the best service or if there were some incentives on free sales tax, out, you know, out of state shipping, that kind of thing, they might go for that. But now you've got two things that you're dealing with. You're dealing with easy access. So let's just take the art of Dr. Seuss. You can go in, you can put in art of Dr. Seuss, you can shop the current prices, but Mm -hmm. then you can go to art brokerage and you can find pieces that are being sold for less than people paid for it. So now dealers are competing with the secondary market on top of that. And then, oh, by the way, you might get turned on to an artist that isn't Dr. Seuss in your searches and say, you know what, this is kind of cool, too. Maybe I don't want Dr. Seuss after all. Maybe mm. I want uh, Snoopy. You know what I mean? There's So the Internet has opened up a whole world for people. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I actually think it's a really good thing. And I am super excited to see what happens with the internet and the future of the art business. I haven't quite figured that out yet. Well, and that's, you know, anyway. Is it a good thing for everybody? Is it a good thing just for the artists? Is it a good thing for you? It's going to be a good thing for me. I haven't figured out how that's gonna work yet, but the reason why it's going to be a good thing for me is because I'm adaptable and I'll figure out how it's gonna be a good thing for me. Right now I haven't, and that is one of the reasons why I pulled back from retail outlets is because I thought, hmm, this is a really good time to take a pause in the market. Mm -hmm. Pull back, take a look and and be patient. See what fleshes itself out. Um, it's, it's, It's already starting to shift with artists selling direct. So I'm kind of watching. I wanna see where the market leads and then I'll jump on that bandwagon once I figure it out, but I haven't yet. I wish I could tell you I have. (laughs) I really wish too. Uh, And I think anybody listening to this really wish. (laughs) So was there any realization since that year and a half when you and I talked uh, and before you went and moved galleries that uh, took place? Or did you pretty much have a clear vision of this when you and I were speaking last? I had a clear vision, but I was really, you know, I was doing that thing that business owners do. And that is the, um, I call it the hope it gets better technique. Mm -hmm. And I kept hoping it was going to get better. And I kept hoping it was going to get better. And I did that technique for about almost a year until I realized, okay, Ruthann, you're an idiot. So facts are, it's not getting better. And you're doing everything in your power to promote artists and do everything you ever did, pull out all the stops and guess what? That's not affecting the market. So I realized that it wasn't 
our lack of ability. The market has shifted, just kind of like the horse shoe guys that were making better horseshoes than they ever did before. Well, guess what? People were getting into automobiles. I'm curious, did you have a chance to listen to your uh, that recording that I sent you? The link? Yes, I did. I listened. W- what did you, you. think? Um, I thought it was pretty accurate. You know, I thought that kind of the predictions that I, w- I was looking at back then, I felt like, you know, yeah, it's still right on track. And uh, did anybody uh, tell you that they listened to it? Mm-hmm. What kind of feedback did you yeah, get? Yeah, I had scared. People are just like, holy shit, if that's the... If that's where we're heading, what are we going to do? I said, well, yeah, what are we going to do? We're going to change. That's our only option. That's what we're going to do. We're going to figure out what the consumer wants mm-hmm. and how we bring it to them. And who are they? I mean, it's back to marketing 101. Who is your consumer? Who's your client? What do they want? How's the best way to, to deliver that to them? That's the simplicity of it. The hard part is figuring those three out. So if I uh, if I called you a year from now, what do you think you'd be talking about? Well, the one thing that I will say for anybody who and anyone who is in business and pretty much any business out there, you're going to go in business, figure out how you're going to model it around the Internet, because that's the future. It's not going away. Mm-hmm. It's going to continue to evolve. And we're just at the very beginning. We're at the tip of the iceberg of that animal. And that will drive everybody's future purchases in the world and we're just really just turning the corner on recognizing that we think it's going to go back to the old-fashioned model of brick and mortar and it is not yeah uh, that's true so i'm curious those people you talked to were they other gallery owners or art dealers yes all pretty much gallery owners you know some of them disputed some of the things i had to say and for for good reason well i think everyone is hanging on to this idea that people are going to continue to want to collect art you know that that the that the uh value the intrinsic value that art has people will not just in general a large part of the population is going to continue to value art enough to actually purchase it and that was probably one of the biggest things. I don't see that happening in the future because I think that people are going to want to download it and be able to own it digitally. I don't think that we are, we're shifting from an idea of owning tangible things to, own, to having tangible experiences. And this new generation, based on the fact that they are facing problems on the planet that we have never faced, they're going to get a piece of the planet's action before it's gone. But I, but in that, just kind of like my last podcast, I'm not, I may sound like I'm painting a bleak picture. I'm not. I'm painting the most exciting times in the world historically have been when industry changes because everybody freaks out. And that's the time if you're smart enough and you can hang in there and you pay attention, there's going to be a freaking golden opportunity waiting right there. You just have to figure out where it's at. Mm -hmm. And it's there. I haven't figured it out, but I'm going to. And I bet there'll be people out there that figure it out before me. And then when I see them, I'm going to copy what they're doing. 
Okay. I'm slowly moving the razor <laughs> away from my wrist. <laughs> Good. Thank you so much for the time, Ruthann. I really appreciate yeah, it. Any pl- anytime. And hey, if you hear, I know you're out there uh, beating the bushes. If you hear of any interesting uh, things that people are doing, I mean, I'm I'm open to it. Most of the stuff I hear is on the podcast, so keep on listening. But I, I want to okay, keep up I our will. dialogue. You're one of the fun people to talk to. Thank you. All right. All right. Well, ha- have a great day. I'll look forward to see- hearing it. Okay. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Well, there you go. And I'm glad we made the call. And uh, like I said, if you want to check out the first part of our conversation with Ruth Ann, and you should, it's episode number 21. And if you're thinking this second half of my conversation with Ruth Ann coming up is just a lot more of the same as the first half, you would be wrong. Seriously, the second half of my conversation with Ruth Ann is where things start to take some wild turns. I mean, they start going to places that I would have never predicted. Completely different than any other interview I've done on the show so far. So let's get comfortable with whatever studs just mixed up for you. Sit back and with me, take in the incredible second half of my conversation with gallery owner Ruth Ann Thorne. I think I was destined for this. I didn't really make a decision that I wanted to be in this business. And I think a lot of the people who are in our industry, they just got wrangled in somehow. I was waiting tables in Waikiki and a girlfriend of mine had gotten a job at the art gallery in Hawaii. And she said, Ruthann, they're hiring. I think you'd be great at this. And I needed another job. And I thought, all right, I'll go apply. I mean, I know a little bit about art. I showed up, got the job, and at about probably two, three weeks later, I'm like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be an art dealer. This was on Oahu. What did you like about it at first? I liked the challenge of building a business. I mean, I think at the heart of who I am as a human being is I'm an entrepreneur. And that has been something that was just in me from the time I was a little kid and started my first paper route at eight years old and begged my dad, could I go to work? You know what? I love creating business. I love making money. I love money, but it's not about the money. It's about the challenge of creating something. I've come to love and appreciate art over the years. Initially, I liked art and my mother was an artist, so I didn't really understand how special it was even when I first started selling it. But over the years, I've created a deep appreciation and almost an awe for the artists that I represent that is um, very authentic. I'm completely blown away when I watch someone paint especially someone really great, it takes my breath away. So now I'm at a place, I think as you get older, you have perspective and you're able to appreciate that this imprint that someone creates in a painting, they're the only ones in the history of time that is capable by all of their life experience, by their talent, 
by their feeling, by everything that they are, and the moment and time in which they are actually residing on the planet, that's the only way that painting could come into physical existence. And they're the only ones that could do it. And so to me, art isn't just about the actual beauty of it. It's the fact that it's the most individual thing that can be created next to maybe music, architecture, possibly um, literature. And those are the things that define us as a community and as a people. And historically, that's what we look back at because it's the only things that remain. So now I, you know, that's why I'm wanting to stay in the art business is because I want to bring as many great artists to the awareness of the public in order to give them a little commercial within the historical context of my lifetime. And that's why I do it. What part about that gets you the most excited on a personal level? Discovering the artists and bringing them to market. The actual art of discovery. That's why my tagline is exclusive collections, Mm -hmm. the art of discovery. Before it was a challenge, keep the doors open, all those things, which it still is. But now that's kind of mundane. It's just, it's a bother. All right, we got to make sales to keep the doors open. Um, I don't really like that part of the business, although at one time I did, and it was a challenge. Now it's just an annoyance. Okay, God, we had to sell more art to keep the doors open. All right, fine. Now it's more what I want to do is spend my time out in the world discovering artists that I think are incredible and bringing them into my galleries so people can see them, specifically artists that maybe would never have the opportunity to have a platform, maybe artists that they didn't have the money to go to the finest schools, or maybe they're living somewhere where you know, it's remote or who knows what their story is. Maybe they're scared of people. I don't know. But that's the part that I love is finding them. Well, tell me a story of that. I mean, about an artist that you've discovered. Well, you know, just two that I, well, one particularly that I discovered that, um, you know, that a lot of people probably know is Henry Asensio. So I discovered Henry Asensio in the back of a framing studio in San Luis Obispo with his paintings on the floor. And apparently he had come out of art school and he couldn't get into any galleries. And my friend, Ralph Gordon, you may know Ralph, he had his little frame shop up there and I went up to have lunch. I was coming back from an expo and I looked on the floor in the back. I said, who's that? He said, oh, it's some kid. I don't know. He's been coming to my gallery and his mom dropped these paintings off. He's like, I don't know what I'm going to do with them. I'm like, well, they're nice. Why don't you hang them? He goes, you think so? He goes, yeah. He goes, I don't, I don't really care for them that much. I said, well, I really like them. He says, well, why don't I'll have them call you? So Henry came down and uh, we had a meeting at my gallery in La Jolla and we brought him on. And then, and I had him in over 60 galleries five years later. And now, you know, he's on his own doing his own thing. But, um, you know, he's an internationally acclaimed artist. Do you know how both exciting and frightening that is to hear as an artist? I'm just picturing, there's a lot of artists that listen to the podcast. And I I know exactly, or at least I think I know exactly where they're going to go to emotionally on that story, which is, 
that's a great get discovered fantasy story of a lot of artists. And then the next thought you have is that is just way too random for comfort. How easy it is not to be discovered. Well, I'm you know, not and going through. Yeah, it is. well, it is. There's and no prescription. It's not like, okay, no, go meet these people and no, do these things. There isn't. It really isn't. I mean, it definitely has to have a magic. You know, I met a guy just recently who I unfortunately couldn't um, carry. I did do a show for him in LA, but I found him. Um, I'm a kind of a strange bird. So I put these ads on Craigslist, um, usually, you know, two, three times a year when I'm bored. And basically the ad says, looking for weird people creating weird things out of weird mediums and preferably self-taught or just strange creating art because you can't not create art, something like that. How often have you done that? Uh, I've done it probably eight or nine times. And And do you always get a response? Always. And tons of weird shit, excuse me, but just all kinds of things. And I do it because I want to do it. And I do it because I want to see what's out there and I want to see what's being created in the name of art just because. All right. I want two stories from you. Okay. So... I obviously want to hear the weirdest thing that ever came back out of this. Okay. And, and, I've got and, two. And then, of course, I want to hear the most successful thing that came out of this because I am really fascinated okay, by this so, idea. Um, you know, I go and um, I went in. This one guy, and I'm not going to say the names because one of them is just a train wreck, but met this guy. He was living and probably still is if it hasn't gotten worse. He was living in a um, pay-by-day hotel in downtown LA in the Garment District. Pay-by-day. Okay. Uh, I'm always amazed when people like that also have access to the web. So, um, yeah. Anyway, I uh, went to his place. I came in incredible artist. He's probably in his early 30s. And so his story was um, he he had had a relationship. He was married and then he got strung out on heroin. What ended up happening was his wife left him and then um, he almost overdosed once, almost overdosed twice on heroin. The third time when he literally, he almost died he said angels appeared to him and told him that he needed to start painting or else he was going to die. So that day, he got himself up. He went and had no money, bought a little tiny acrylic paint set, which he showed me, which had like eight colors, went in the back of an alley, found some cardboard and started painting. Never had painted before. The guy is absolutely brilliant, unbelievable, just an incredible artist. So I did a show for him at my gallery in um, Beverly Hills. And then at the show, he completely lost his mind and um, imploded and basically started getting paranoid. And I found out... Like in the room full of people. Yes. And I realized I was dealing with someone who was not stable. And so I sold a couple of his paintings, sold them and, and returned everything but um, it's too bad because he's a really brilliant painter. You're ballsy to begin with, not only for running the ad, but going down to that pay by the day oh my hotel, God. I would meeting do it with this guy, every day hearing the story about his heroin addiction and then how the angels talked to him and all that. Not only did you not go running out of the room looking for safety, but then decided to sign him on and make a business investment in him. Yeah, I'm a little, I'm a little crazy like that, but I enjoy it. That's what I enjoy the most. I like getting right in there. 
So there's another guy who's a photographer, same thing, met him on Craigslist, real quiet guy, probably one of the nicest guys you've ever met. His story was he fell in love with a girl, moved to New Orleans. Um, she ended up robbing him and taking everything that he had. He ended up on the street. He ended up getting um, rolled on the street. And then um, he ended up in jail for something that he didn't do. This poor guy, he'd just been through it. Like the nicest guy you ever met. Finally got out of jail, got a job, moved to L.A. And he um, decided that he was going to pick up a camera and start doing photography, which he had done in high school. Again, not trained. So when I came into his place... He showed me his photography. It was incredible of like uh, octopus antennas wrapped around old phones and just super, super creative. So he showed me his refrigerator. He had every amazing sea life, dead sea life in there from squid to octopus to fish and shrimp. And then he was like the mad scientist. You go into his one bedroom place, but his one bedroom, he slept in the living room on the couch because his one bedroom was a photography studio. And he just had every possible thing you could imagine, computer parts, this and that, and was creating some of the most spectacular photos that I've ever seen. Unbelievable. A lot of it spoke to um, his own tortures in life. And I mean, I can't really, it's a visual, it's hard to really describe. Mm -hmm. But um, we've been successfully selling his photography also. Those are two kind of extremes. And there's a lot of other ones that I'm in the process of working with. But that's what I really love. I mean, my my goal is to go on the road at some point and just start looking for artists all over the world. I have a project that I'm doing this summer where I'm going into Indian country onto the reservations um, Standing Rock, Sioux Nation, and then a lot of the other major, um, probably poorer Indian reservations, Navajo country. And I'm going in, they're allowing me in because I'm Native American, and I'm going to go in and look for artists and tell their stories. That's fantastic. Because, you know, I have to imagine that we probably don't have many Native American art dealers in the world. And there's just, some just by basic numbers, you know, mm -hmm. there's only so many Native Americans, there's only so many professions one is going to be and but to then, you know, to be able to do that with both sensitivity and access, I mean, that probably has not happened a lot. I'm sure there has been a number of times where an art dealer has had that thought, but to come in as forgive the uh, the use of words, but one of the tribe, you mm -hmm. know. So I want to see what I can find. And primarily I'm looking for younger artists that are maybe right on the edge between, you know, contemporary living and living on the Indian reservation and how they're affected by technology, but also just capturing their story and maybe looking for art I could bring into the gallery um, that is, again, I'm always looking for something that is not traditional. You know, I don't need another seascape, landscape, field of flowers. What I need is I need that thumbprint of somebody saying, this is what I'm expressing that nobody else has ever expressed before. And the reason that I'm creating this is not to be a selling artist. The reason I'm creating it is because I have to. You know, I'm evolving with it too. You know, as an art dealer, I want to be challenged. I want to see things I've never seen before. 
whether I carry it or not. Hey, sorry to jump in here. And in just a bit, we'll get right back to my conversation with Ruth Ann Thorne. But I just wanted to point out that you're still listening to this not-so-short show, which means you like it, or maybe you just fell asleep. If it's the like it reason, I want to ask you a favor. You happen to be my only marketing plan. Now stop thinking I'm screwed. Actually, the task that you have is pretty simple. I just need you to tell the folks that you think might be interested in this just like you are that the show exists in the first place and maybe recommend that they take a listen to it too. They can do that on just about any podcast app. And if they don't have one of those, they can go on over to the artdealer.show, our website where all the episodes are kept and that gives them more information about how to find it in other places. Now, let's get back to my interview with Ruth Ann Thorne or maybe in your case, sleep. And if you are asleep, the Art Dealer Show is the best podcast ever. You love The Art Dealer Show, and you're going to tell all your friends about it. Was there any turning point? Was there ever a period where it was becoming like it does for a lot of other, you know, gallery owners, where it was becoming humdrum and you were getting locked in in that way? Absolutely. And And was there anything that happened that caused you to have to say, I either have to have a fresh new way of looking at this and feeling about it, or I got to stop doing it or. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think as you get older, you realize that, um, you know, you, you have one life and I love the art business for some, in some ways, but what I don't want to do is I don't want to just keep repeating the exercise every day. Like you said, I don't want to just open the gallery, carry the same artist, do the same thing. Nothing against the artists I carry, um, but when you recognize you have one life, you have one little line from the time that you're born till the time it's over, at some point, I think it's important, at least for me, to find out what is the imprint that I want to leave. And having a 10-year-old daughter, I want to example to her that life isn't about making money. Yes, money is necessary. It's, it's something that's an important part of your life, but it shouldn't just be the driving factor is just economics. When I talk to a lot of art dealers, not all, the economic portion is the driving force. How many sales did we make? You know, and there is that in it. And, but I wanted to pull myself away from that and not have that be the only thing I'm defined by. I don't want to go into the grave and have people say, she made a lot of money. She was super successful. Look at how much money she made. To me, that's not a successful life. A successful life is being passionate, creating something that is your mark on the planet, um, helping other people. You know, I'm hoping that when I discover a really great artist, It helps them be able to facilitate their own creativity. And then, um, you know, if you run a successful business, it blesses all those employees that you have because you give them jobs and platforms to facilitate their dreams. Ruth Ann's version of life is life is not about me. Life is about the blessings that I'm able to create for all those people around me. 
and enjoying and having a good time while I do it. Right. I mean, it's a great way of saying it. And I've gone through that own, that very similar experience as my own. I mean, in my own way, where you do eventually get to the place where you realize that money on its own doesn't really buy you life experience. It doesn't make your life worth anything in the end. And the older I get, the more I find myself hungering for genuine things of importance and value. And more important than that, just experiences. I don't want to do anything over and over and over again if it's not constantly challenging me. Right. You know, and the part I love the most about, you know, what you were just talking about with your Craigslist experiment, that at least it shakes it up. You know, Completely. You're, right. <laughs> you know, those are very different artist experiences that you would not have had otherwise. And it makes life worth living when things are different and change. I, I feel that about everything. I feel that about movies. I don't want to see the same movie over and over again. I don't want to see Fast and the Furious number seven. I want to see a mediocre movie I've never seen before. I'd rather have a bad movie that's trying to do something entirely different than a good movie that's I've seen many times. Yep. I mean, what do they say? Variety is the spice of life. As an art community, we're up against a lot of challenges. And I, you know, I, I feel the pain and suffering of a lot of artists right now and a lot of dealers. We are feeling the pinch. I mean, we do have good months here and there, but the consistency of those sales are far and few between. We can't count on it like we used to. But I think the other way of looking at it is it gives us a lot of opportunities to see um, it, what ingenuity we have as dealers, how to spice it up, how to reinvent, how to become relevant to our collectors. And so I think that we're really on the precipice of some very exciting things in our community. And it, and I really commend you for bringing this podcast together because it gives us an opportunity to hear each other and kind of, you know, kind of stimulate those juices and say, all right, we're all in this together. Let's figure out a way of how to become better than we've ever been. So I'm just curious in the story of what brought you into getting into the business, which we already know, but then opening up your own galleries. But I have a feeling that, you know, maybe there's a little bit more to it because obviously the person who throws random ads on Craigslist doesn't have a normal, predictable path to probably anything in their life. So you tell me. Well... Yeah, that's, that is an interesting question. Well, I moved out of the house when I was 14. So I finished the ninth grade. Mm -hmm. That was my last real um, ac academic achievement. And, um, you know, when you're 14 and you move out, there are not a lot of opportunities. So I took the first one that came along was um, I shacked up with a drug dealer and I learned the fine art of selling cocaine at 14 and became a drug runner up from Mexico. Because at that time, you know, if you got caught running drugs, you just get slapped on the hand. And you were a minor. And I was a minor. But you know, it's interesting. There was a long time that I was so afraid of telling, oh my God, I'm so ashamed of my dark and deep past. But now I'm not. I actually celebrate that because it's been the path that's gotten me where I've been. The beauty of, of being in the drug trade, and I'm not talking pharmaceuticals, is that you really do get an education on business. Mm -hmm. You learn about wholesale, retail, markup, demographic, 
And you learn how to um, read people real security. quick. Security. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that, right. <laughs> security, that's always a good one. Um, so, you know, by the time I was about 18, I decided um, I had almost died a couple of times, you know, don't get high on your own supply. Well, I kept that rule for a while until I had some traumatic things happen that I won't go into. But um, long story short, um, I started using and then... Um, I almost OD'd a couple times. And the second time I realized, okay, I got to make some decisions. And so um, I'm not a religious person, but I prayed. I said, God, if you're out there, this would be a good time to show up. And God showed up and started opening up opportunities for me. And I ended up getting uh, married young. I ended up getting my GED, which was a miracle because I had a ninth grade education, took it the first time, passed it signed up for some college classes. And then I ended up, you know, married and in Hawaii, trying to figure out what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. So when the opportunity for the art business opened up, I realized, wow, I can go back to school, or I can do this very cool thing. I can work in an art gallery, and I can learn this trade, and I can probably do something with it. Um, and so that's the story. And then from there, you know, I just learned everything I could. And then I tried to get a loan when I opened my first business. Nobody would give me a loan. They wanted to know my business plan. I didn't have one. So I bootstrapped myself with what little I had. I had artists consign artwork to me. And I opened my first gallery out of the back of a rider truck. And this is where? This was in uh, San, San Diego, but I would uh -huh. go, I would drive my truck anywhere from LA, Portland, Seattle. The furthest I drove it was um, Philadelphia. And I would pick up a guy from the gym or whatever to help me be the roadie. Yeah. You know, he'd sleep on the floor in, in the, um, usually I would rent meeting rooms. Set up my walls. I, you know, I had walls. Would lights. you advertise ahead of time? I or? would send out um, invitations, black and white invitations, because I couldn't afford color. Right? But where Go were figure. you sending it to? Did you have All, a yeah, list? Yeah, I, I had a client list. So um, images folded, and they and I bought wholesale from Stephen Higa, who was the owner of that company, and I and I had their blessing. I worked my own clients, and then I would advertise. I didn't have a whole Did lot you have of access clients. to the gallery list, or just your just own my list? own list. So uh -huh. that can't be too huge. I mean, no, I mean, I can't tell you how many times. More hundreds than thousands. Oh my gosh, I can't tell you how many times I rolled a donut. Yeah. I mean, I do a show and I literally be upside down. And uh, So you basically sent out kind of like a letter saying, uh -huh. hey, you remember me, your art dealer from, from Oahu, or call, right, yeah. I'm coming to your town. Yeah. Come and see me yes. at the Starlight Ballroom exactly. at the Sheridan. That's what I did. And it was brutal. It was the hardest work I have ever done. And there were many, 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 many nights that I cried my little eyes out and that I just thought this is the stupidest thing you've ever done. And um, but I just kept at it. Well, and then let's go with that kept at it thing. Uh -huh. Are you keeping at it because you're such a believer and you love this? Or are you keeping at it that because this is the one thing you've got to work with at that point. I think in time. it's a little bit of both. I think it was, um, you know, I was young. You know, I was twenty. I when I opened up my own company, I was twenty eight. It was a little bit of both. So I a mean, bit of the naivete of, of yeah. youth, or and yeah, I mean, I was fearless, and I still am. I mean, yeah, you can call it stupidity. I'm sure that's part of it. But um, 
when I see an opportunity, I just go after it. I'm not afraid to fail because, you know, I've failed a lot and I've experienced a tremendous amount of adversity in my life, like many people. You know, I mean, to me, there is no loss. I mean, you don't get to take any of it with you anyway, last I checked. You don't, nobody gets out that, alive. Would you say maybe that's, <laughs> yeah, but that cuts two ways, right? I'm just talking mm-hmm. philosophically here. Right. No, I agree with you. No one gets out alive. On the other hand, that could give you the courage to just chug forward and be damned with everything. Well, I'm not that way. Or it could also give you the, the actual fear of there's just too much risk here and I only have this one life. So maybe I shouldn't be focusing on the thing that at the end could just be, you know, a big wash up for my one life. Well, there's a fine line between stupidity and being um, fearless. So, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't jump off of a cliff into the water below because I thought that the ride was going to be that exciting if I thought there was a possibility that I'd break my neck and be paralyzed for the rest of my life. But in that, there does come I a moment of decision. I more incredible success and wonderful stories to tell it on one side of the, uh, of, of the you know, possibilities and the other side is mediocrity and poverty. Yeah, well... I'm not afraid of poverty because I've already experienced that and it Uh was tough, but it wasn't that bad. And the truth of the matter is, if I lost it all, you just give me some time and it's all going to come back. Mm -hmm. I'm not not afraid of, I wouldn't have the ability to do it again. But that confidence in yourself, that's a trait unto itself. It's not just a philosophical place. No, it's it's not. I mean, it's not arrogance. It's just that I... No, no, it's just self-confidence. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that, you know, what does it say? Water rises to meet its own level. Mm -hmm. And so I've seen that law in everybody's life. People that settle for shitty relationships always end up in one. And people who say, you know what? No, this is my standard. They meet the standard. We meet whatever standard it is that... We may ebb and flow, but ultimately you see that standard. It's just, it's innate. And I think that that is what I've lived by is that I'm not afraid because I know what my standard is. And I've been down in the depths of, you know, in the, um, you know, pigsty. And I, I decided that wasn't my standard. And so I didn't stay there. And so... Yeah, I don't know. I know that sounds weird, but... No, not um, at all. I get know, that. Yeah, I think people will... Because a lot of people mm-hmm. will decide if they're, they find themselves in a particular set of circumstances that they're there for a reason, and they'll let those circumstances describe who they are. Or they get pissed and they say, you know what, this is ridiculous. I don't accept this. And then they make changes. And before right. long, well, that's the they're other out of that situation. Yeah. And so I'm that person... Um, you know, and I'm constantly trying to raise my standards too in all areas. I mean, it's a constant process. Every day I work on, I listen to a lot of motivational tapes. I mean, I don't think I've got it all figured out, but I'm certainly continuing to work on it. And I want to raise my daughter in that positive environment that be fearless, be smart, and um, continue to work on yourself. Look at the things that need to be improved upon and face those things. Um, and have the humility to say, all right, I need to work on that and do it. And then the standards continue to be raised. 
So anyway, the, that's my backstory. I think that it's given me the ability to meet with people on a lot of different yeah. levels. People walk into the gallery. I'm a chameleon. I can talk to the homies and the bros that walk in, and I can talk to you know the sophisticated physicists, the physicist convention down the street. Tell me, at what point, though? All right, so now you're in your rider truck. Yeah. You're going around the country. Some are coming up donuts. Some are successes, obviously, I'd assume. Uh, right, where does that, how does that take you to opening up your first brick and mortar gallery? Well, my husband that I had been married to, we had three children from his previous marriage and we inherited three kids and he was in the military. So he was gone a lot. So I became a single parent at about 27, meaning that we were married, but he was gone. So oh, I, I inherited, okay. you know, eight, 10 and 12 year olds. Uh-huh. And I realized that I couldn't be on the road like that. So I opened my first gallery. So I took all the money that I had made at doing this on the road and I parlayed it all into my first gallery in La Jolla. And my, you know, my ex-husband, he helped me build it out and, you know, he did a lot of work on it. But anyway, long story short, um, we coined the phrase, there's nothing more expensive than cheap rent because we were right a stone's throw away from where all the action was. It was a really, really tough location. So my, my mom supported me. She ended up quitting her job. She came in to help me, worked for free, lived with me. You mean stone's throw in a, it sounds like, like now in a negative term, it like was you were completely, just at the outside of where everybody's I'm going. I'm telling you, people could see my gallery. But they weren't walking in front of it. But they weren't walking in front of okay. it. So this was a, re- I mean, I sat at the desk and literally once again, cried my little eyes out. I thought this is the stupidest thing you've ever done. And uh, then we went back to, we realized, okay, people aren't walking in. We decided that we needed to go back to our original idea, which was I did all those shows. So we started doing the home and garden show at the uh, fairgrounds, interior design show. We started getting out of the gallery and pulling people in. Mm -hmm. So we figured we'd do every art festival back to the same damn thing, loading up the walls, doing the whole thing. But what happened was we started developing a client base as a destination. And then we were in that gallery for about three years. We ended up getting a big break. We ended up um, being scouted for a gallery at Fashion Valley Shopping Center. And that kind of opened up the floodgates because now we were just prime time retail. And then I ended up, um, I couldn't work with my ex-husband. He came into the business. We were just too, both too strong of personalities. He ended up taking over the retail and I started the publishing company. Mm. So I ended up with the two artists and then jumping all over the country. So it's been a real interesting ride. Yeah, it sounds like it. Thank you very much for the time. Yeah, it's been Uh, my pleasure. This was wonderful. Oh, and likewise, I appreciate it. I didn't know that I had done all that. Thank you for reminding me. I'm exhausted now. Are you kidding me? Finding art dealers on Craigslist? Learning the business as a drug dealer? Don't tell me you've ever heard an interview like that before. Don't tell me this is like any other podcast you've ever listened to before. I want to thank Ruth Ann Thorne once again. If you're ever down in San Diego, you should go give her a shout at her gallery. That's Exclusive Collections. The exact address, you'll just have to find yourself. On a personal note, 
I'd like to dedicate tonight's show to one of its biggest fans. That would be my mother, Yvette Stern. Since the last time you and I got to hang out here at the old art dealer bar, uh, my mother lost her very short but intense fight with cancer. And I'd like to say more, but, um, but I can't. I'd also like to honor the memory of an art dealer friend who I've known for many, many years. And sadly, just a few months before my mother lost her fight, she lost her own fight to cancer, by chance the exact same form of cancer, Yukiko Ishirahara. My guess is that she never heard the art dealer show, as she did not speak much English. And as a result of that, we never really got to know as much about each other as we probably would have normally if we had shared the same language. But language aside, I can attest that she was a great art dealer. I did not need to know a word of Japanese to testify to this. I'm sure you know what I mean when I say, if you are one, an art dealer, one with experience under your belt, you know a good one just by watching them in action. All of us who had the pleasure of working with her over these years are going to miss her very much. I also want to thank all of you, the many people who have written me emails, sent me messages through Instagram, have written some incredible comments on uh, my iTunes page for not only saying nice things about the show, but in recent months, encouraging me to get back at it here at my booth at the old art dealer bar. And one in particular, although I'm going to be getting to some of you later on, is uh, Jared Green. He's an art dealer over on the East Coast, and uh, we've had some fantastic conversations. And along the way, he's been a real inspiration for me to get back out here in front of the microphone. So thank you, Jared. So until next time, may the coconuts be big, fall at your feet. Good night, my art dealers. Good night. This has been The Art Dealer Show. You can find us on the web at artdealer.show and at all the popular social media haunts under the handle, yeah, you guessed it, Art Dealer Show. <laughs>